You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of North Sydney Council and the Constant Reader Bookshop, welcome to the Library and to the Writers at Stanton program. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands in which we meet and to pay our respects to the spirits and ancestors, both past and present. My name is Philippa Duflu from the Collection Services team, and today I have the pleasure of introducing Aaron Patrick to speak about his new book, Ego, Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal Party's Civil War. Aaron is a senior correspondent at the Australian Financial Review, based in Sydney, and has written for the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal. He is also an ex-Young Labor president and associate of Bill Shorten. Aaron has written three previous books on Australian politics which examine recent upheavals in our political landscape. They are Downfall, Kredlin and Co, and The Surprise Party. Aaron's new book is the riveting story of an ex-Prime Minister's bold campaign against his successor's government. It details Turnbull's journey from Prime Minister to apparent anti-liberal. Aaron argues that Malcolm Turnbull deserves much of the credit or the blame for destroying the Morrison government. Turnbull had an impact on many wealthy inner-city seats that went to Teal independence in May's federal election. He was able to articulate why wealthy, wavering liberals should not like Scott Morrison. Aaron reveals how Malcolm Turnbull destabilised the government he was once part of and courted forces openly hostile to it. Turnbull played a role behind the scenes in some of the biggest scandals of the Morrison government, particularly those that damaged Scott Morrison's reputation with women. It appears that scandals such as the Christian Porter allegations had a major influence on this year's election result. Please welcome Aaron Patrick. Thank you very much, Philippa. I appreciate the introduction. Thank you, very, everyone, for coming along today. It's lovely to see you all, and I really appreciate it. And um, I hope I can you know, give you an interesting presentation. If you don't like what I'm saying, feel free to heckle, throw things, anything like that, and I'll try and get the message and and speed it up. So um, I, I live about four blocks from here in North Sydney, and so in a way this is my local library, and so that increases the pleasure of being here. But at the start of last year, when we were all enduring, um, we were going through these lockdowns, I've forgotten how many we had. I was sitting there alone in my house, and I thought, well, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, I'd really like to write a book about the Morrison government, because that's what I do. I'm a political journalist um, some of the time. But I thought, look, what's my angle? The problem is, is that <coughs> it's not COVID, I promise you. The problem is Scott Morrison is not that interesting a person, I decided. And I didn't think he could, he could stand up a whole book. Um, and I thought, but Malcolm Turnbull, he's such an intriguing, devilish, devilishly disturbed individual um, that he might make a, um, a book. So initially I decided to try and do a comparison about Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison and what they were like as Prime Ministers, compared the two. And 
And for, for very different men, they actually had some um, surprising similarities in the background. You know, they, they, they grew up within walking distance of each other. Their schools played against each other in sports. And in their, in their early political careers, they actually formed um, a very useful alliance which should help propel both of them, basically help both of them get established in politics, um, which they don't really talk about much today. Um, and to my surprise, I did my research. I found out Scott Morrison's father had been, he was a policeman, but he'd also been a councillor on the Waverley City Council for about 15 years. Um, and at one point he'd been the local mayor and a senior cop in the neighbourhood. And he had this re weird blurring of law enforcement and local law setting, I guess. Um, and there'd been this sort of little bit of corruption around the council at that time. So I did some digging into that and... and I was just intrigued. I love politics, and I think that um, we're all sort of we're all creations of our parents and our environment. So I thought, gee, Scott Morrison's dad, local councillor, cop, bit of corruption around the scene. What does this all mean? But then Malcolm Turnbull um, blessed me by pursuing the Morrison government with increasing vigour as the election drew close. And it's, it, it, it's hard to remember this now, but when Malcolm Turnbull was removed as Prime Minister in 2018, he was quite positive towards his successor. He called him Scott, he wished him all the best, and there was a sense that um, Malcolm would pass into political retirement not, not happy, but definitely not bitter. And he might be a kind of semi-constructive, non-destructive force for the Morrison government. But what happened was journalists started writing that Scott Morrison had played a previously untold behind-the-scenes role in Malcolm Turnbull's removal. And essentially what they, what they argued is, is that Scott Morrison pretended to be supporting Malcolm while enabling... Um, the challenge to him from Dutton in a way that Dutton couldn't quite get there but was just strong enough to, to knock off Turnbull. And this was such an intriguing theory because it would explain so much but it also had this great mystery behind it and, we, and no one could prove that it was true but no one could prove that it wasn't true. And so Malcolm Turnbull seemed to be convinced of the truth of that. And whereas he had previously reserved most of his anger for the ministers who he directly blamed for frustrating him, Matthias Cormann, Christian Porter, Peter Dutton, Angus Taylor, maybe Alan Tudge, he turned his guns on Scott Morrison. And for three years, Malcolm Turnbull was involved in every major scandal of the Morrison government. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not criticising Malcolm Turnbull for that. I'm just seeking to describe in this book, Ego, what he did. And I'm not accusing him of, of unethical behaviour, OK? I'm just trying to describe this for others to decide, others to judge on his behaviour. But <clears throat> from, the, from the problems with the pandemic to the nuclear submarines to pretty much any big problem that Morrison had, Turnbull was there. And he spoke with this wonderful authority of an ex-prime minister. And he would say things like, well, 
you're locking out... You, probably no one remembers this now, but there was a big story first half of 2021 when flights from India were banned from Australia. And if you came in on them, if you tried to sneak in from India, you could be jailed and fined thousands and thousands of dollars. And it was sort of really a bureaucratic measure because they just had too much COVID in the, um, in the isolation centres, I think the one up in Northern Territory, and they were just a bit overwhelmed. So they just wanted to... Hunt and Morrison just really wanted to uh, lower the number of COVID infections in the centre for a short time. But um, Malcolm got out there and he made it sound like um, it was a racist policy that was directed at Indian Australians. This played straight into the Labor Party's narrative about this and the narrative on the left. And, and, and it was at that point, towards well, a little bit later, that those... Those attacks by, by Morrison on the pandemic management started to coincide with a really steep drop in Morrison's approval rating. And it's hard to remember now, but Morrison in the first year, first eight months of the pandemic was incredibly popular. You know, he benefited from the uplift in public support from politicians that we saw in every state. Um, so I would argue that Malcolm contributed to that change in perception about Morrison's management of the pandemic. Then, of course, he, he, he weighed in on the nuclear submarines. And I argue in, in ego that this was ironic because Malcolm liked the idea of nuclear submarines. He had seriously considered it when he was Prime Minister and he decided to go with the French diesel option for various reasons. And what I think was the problem was is that Malcolm was offended that Scott Morrison did a deal that he would have liked to have done. Scott Morrison put himself on the world stage by incorporating Australia into the US-British nuclear submarine sharing arrangement, which was quite a shift in global international relations. But the most important thing that Malcolm Turnbull did in terms of <coughs> undermining the electoral support the Morrison government was helping shape its perceptions of the treatment of women. So the election this year was not so much a revolution, but a huge, I guess, wave. It was an expression of a huge wave of resentment towards that government for its perceived treatment of women. And part of the problem was is Scott Morrison's persona. He won the 2019 election by engaging in what Malcolm Turnbull called his semi-confected, daggy dad persona, which is a bloke from the Shire who wears baseball caps and loves talking and having a beer around the barbie. And that really worked well in the 2019 election because he's up against Bill Shorten, who was sort of an inner-city sophisticated bloke. And the suburbs and the regions went hard for Morrison. But it, but it, it, it started to work against Morrison... At, during the course of his government when they had these problems of gender identity, sexual misconduct and related matters. Christine Holgate, the head of Australia Post, Brittany Higgins, Grace Tame. And as Malcolm got involved in every single one of these, I looked at it and I thought, gee, that's interesting. You know, Malcolm, there is Malcolm again. He's on RN, Fran Kelly talking about um, how the Prime Minister's office 
must have known that when Brittany Higgins went to her minister, Linda Reynolds, and said she'd been raped. He said the Prime Minister's office must have known. He implicated the Prime Minister's office in essentially what was alleged to be a cover-up of a rape in Parliament House. Okay? Now, it's just very important for legal reasons we make it clear that there is a trial coming up, no one is, no one is being convicted, the man in this case is, 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 is pleading not guilty. I want to make that very clear. So I'm not making any judgment all about whether something happened or didn't happen. But it received huge amounts of publicity and there was a perception in there, um, helped, which Malcolm helped create, that Scott Morrison was involved in a cover-up. Then, of course, you had, um, you had um, um, Scott Morrison, who then turned up at a press conference um, after realising he was losing control of this narrative and said, listen, I spoke to Jenny last night and she told me that rape's bad. <laughs> now, in ego, I argue that Malcolm Turnbull would have never made such a mistake. For all Malcolm's shortfalls, I think he's, I think he's genuinely a man who forms strong platonic relationships with women. Susan Lee, now the Deputy Liberal Leader, said they were very good friends. And he said Malcolm relished women, he liked women. At the same time, Malcolm had his own very complicated background relationship with women, and it goes back to his mother, um, Angela Lansbury, who was a um, um, beautiful young actress, radio actress in her day, and walked out on the family when Malcolm was 10. Her decision to walk out had profound consequences for Malcolm's childhood because it forced his father, who sold pubs for a living, to put him into Sydney Grammar as a boarder, where he was, where he was, where he was bullied. He was bullied, bullied pretty badly at the boarding house down in Randwick, just around the corner from where Scott Morrison would go to school. And Sydney Grammar in those days, in the end, they shut they, Sydney Grammar shut down the boarding house because they realised they just couldn't control the behaviour there. And essentially, as far as I can tell, it was a bunch of kids from the bush, wealthy, very sporty boys from the bush. And I think Malcolm, as an intellectual, as a thespian, as, a, as a, an aspiring man of culture, would have fared, obviously fared pretty badly in that case. So one of the ironies is that Malcolm's mother, Lansbury, was, um, was clearly a bit of a libertine of her day. Um, she was married three times. Her first husband was, if I remember correctly, 30 years older. Her first husband was one of her father's good friends. And um, within two weeks of their wedding, he became sick. And within six months, he was dead. Lanthry was in her mid-twenties. She inherited um, some apartments down at Point Piper, where Malcolm lives today. So then she started dating um, Malcolm's father, Bruce Turnbull. They got pregnant. They got married. And I, I developed this theory about Malcolm, which I put to him, and he accused me of pop psychology when I did it, was that Malcolm's, Malcolm's puritanism as Prime Minister, when he banned sexual relations between ministers and their staff, was at odds and perhaps in reaction to the behaviour of his parents, and in particular his mother. Because Malcolm had experienced the consequences of what happens when a... Marriage breaks down. So Malcolm, I think, had a profound impact on the perception that the Morrison government 
was, um, was not in touch with the female experience. Okay. And part of the way he did that was through the cases of Alan Targe, who was the education minister, and Christian Porter, who was obviously the attorney general. Now, in the book, I go into these cases at some length. I spoke to the people directly involved, and I hope I'm able to share some new perspective on what actually, what actually happened. Um, my argument in Porter's case is controversial because I suggest in the book that the media um, may not have brought all the facts to light that were available about Porter's accuser. Now, I appreciate this is a very sensitive issue. I have a lot of respect for the friends and family members of the young woman who took her life after accusing Porter of rape. And they were very decent people. And you could tell that they had been... They had watched their friend, friend's life be destroyed. And this woman, this poor woman, felt that what had happened, what allegedly happened to her and Porter, was the source of her life's failure. Um, I argue, or I suggest in, the, in, in Ego, that... Unfortunately, this woman, whose name is Kate Thornton, I have a photograph of her in the book, um, was not, by her own admission, um, mentally well, and that there was important information about the things she said about Porter, the way in which she, way in which she described remembering what had happened, that the public deserved to know. To be fair, just on Porter. Now, I'm not defending Porter as a man, okay, but I think all of us are entitled to the presumption of innocence. And in Porter's case, what we had here was the destruction of his entire life over allegations that could never be proven um, or meet the criminal standard. Now, I appreciate um, a lot of people in society regarded Porter as a bad person. And a lot of people might think that he got what he deserved. And I understand why people would think that. But this is one of the issues. This is a really tough issue that I think as a society we have to discuss. As an industry that I'm in, media, we have to discuss it as well, how we treat people and what we publish and what we say about them. So that is probably, for me, this is an element that hasn't got any publicity in terms of the coverage of my book. For me, it's the most important part of it, though. And perhaps it hasn't got the coverage because we find it very hard in the media to reflect upon our own performance. Anyway, I'll let everyone else um, make up their own mind. Um, but I would like to share an anecdote about, um, about Alan Tudge that I recount in, in Ego, um, which is that... Um, uh, Alan, when he was the Human Services Minister in 2017, flew out to Kalgoorlie with Malcolm Turnbull, and they are promoting what was called the cashless welfare card, which is essentially to stop people on unemployment benefits or other benefits spending their welfare on alcohol or gambling. And this was a um, big deal for Taj because it's what the Conservatives loved, and he thought it could help him get propelled into the Cabinet because he was in the outer minister. Anyway, for reasons that are a bit unclear, Malcolm Turnbull turned up first and he went with the local MP and they walked around the streets of Kalgoorlie with television cameras 
to promote their visit. And Alan wasn't told, or he was told too late, so he couldn't make it. So he got very upset. So he went to the local, went to his hotel with his press secretary, a woman called Rochelle Miller. And um, they proceeded to get drunk um, at the counter, at the bar, and there were members of Turnbull's staff who were also staying in the hotel there, and they were all drinking as well. They were drinking gin. Um, now, Miller and Taj had become quite close in the sense that they would go out drinking, then they would go home and have some kind of sexual relations. So that night, um, after, after the gin, they went back to his hotel room. They were so drunk that Rochelle told me the next day she doesn't know if they, if they fooled around or not. Um, but her phone went off at 4 or 5 a.m. with um, journalists from the East Coast ringing to have asked for interviews with Touch. And Alan was, by Rochelle's um, recounting, um, not happy at being woken up that early in the morning. So she says he, she, he physically kicked her out of the bed and she was naked. So she had to get her clothes together, go to her room, then get on the phone, do everything. So a few hours later, 10am, they're all they're still hungover. They have a meeting with Malcolm Turnbull and his staff and it is to prepare for a press conference about the cashless debit card. And at this point, the um, same-sex marriage plebiscite is about to start. And so the press secretaries tell Turnbull that he's likely to get some questions about it. So Malcolm starts telling an anecdote about his time as a minister in the Howard government, when I guess he was environment minister. And he said a comment like, um, and when this issue came up then, I realised that, um, that it was the... Um, the most persistent advocates for traditional marriage were some of the most enthusiastic participants in extramarital affairs. <laughs> and then, according to Rochelle, he stared straight at them, him in touch. A few years later, Malcolm would use that very same line on the Four Corners story inside the Canberra bubble, which revealed part of what had gone on, transpired between Tudge and Miller and would cause Alan huge damage to his reputation. Um, I came to the conclusion, as all this was happening, that Malcolm was a really good story, and he was the vehicle I was going to use to tell what had gone wrong with the Morrison government. And he just kept getting better. He kept doubling down. By the time the government lost, I reached the conclusion that Malcolm was the, was the great unrecognised contributor of the change in government this year. And if you look at it, that's pretty remarkable because he led the Liberal government to victory in 2016. Not a great victory, but it was still a victory. And he contributed to their defeat in 2022. Now, I don't know that this has ever happened in Australian politics before. It certainly hasn't happened since in the post-war period. Um, three other Liberal Party leaders have turned on the party. They were John Gorton, who was Prime Minister from 68 to 71. He ran for the Senate as an independent. Malcolm Fraser, Malcolm Fraser was PM from 75 to 83. I think he joined the Greens, or he became a Greens advocate. And John Hewson, who was opposition leader from 1990 to and he, I guess you would call him a teal independent these days. But none of those three had any kind of significant electoral impact... You know, like none of them 
I don't think, moved one seat. But Malcolm, you could argue, though those, the reason I think Malcolm deserves credit or blame for essentially um, the Teals, and probably broader than that, and what are the Teals... Tom Switzer, know how many seats did the Teals win this year, or Liberal? Seven this year. So seven seats they won, OK? Five, five new, or six new. Um, in... in in, in many of those seats that the coalition lost last month, they experienced record or near record liberal votes when Turnbull was leader in 2016. And this is Kooyong and Higgins in Melbourne, Brisbane and Ryan in Brisbane, Curtin in Perth, and Wentworth in Sydney. Okay? So these were seats, these are Turnbull seats. And I think North Sydney, where we are too, the numbers weren't the same. But for me, these, uh, this, these seats we're talking about, and we're in right now, are Turnbull territory. And I think I'm giving Turnbull credit for moving them away from Morrison and, and the coalition government. And I just think that's a remarkable action by Turnbull, um, by any politician in Australian political history. And I note, Malcolm, I've put this argument publicly and Malcolm hasn't disputed it in any way. Um, perhaps he, he's pretty happy. Um, I got some, there's some other things here, but look, I think I've spoken enough for the moment. So thanks so much for listening. Happy to take any questions, or if, you, or if, if you're satisfied, we can just sell some books. I've got a microphone to um, pass it out. The Podcast. Okay, so if you speak, you'll be broadcast on the Sentinel Library. I mean, Scott Morrison sort of dug his own grave at the end. Um, but, I mean, like, how much did Turnbull really... I mean, without Turnbull, Scott was still going to lose. The question is, how much did he help the loss by? Well, we just don't know, right? Because he can't separate it out. So, <clears throat> if Malcolm Turnbull had died in 2018, would have Scott Morrison lost? Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. He was probably... Yes, probably. But... Um, so, so we, we just don't know, but I, I think the thing is, um, I, Malcolm became a quasi-leader of the opposition. And there were, there were times on particular issues where Malcolm was more effective than Anthony Albanese. <laughs> you know, and I watched it, and I'd, I'd watched him. He was able to articulate, particularly, say, during some of the issues during the pandemic and the Brittany Higgins case, he was able to articulate things that Albanese couldn't because there are often cases where the Labor and the coalition actually shared the same policy. But also, Malcolm Turnbull has such a beautiful voice and a way of expressing himself. He's so articulate in a way, far more articulate than Anthony Albanese. So I think, you know, he deserves as much credit as anyone. Thank you very much for the very interesting talk. Um, in, 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 what, in all the reasons that you gave us, you didn't mention anything about Malcolm Turnbull framing Scott Morrison as a liar. I was just wondering how influential do you think that was? That is a very good point. Because, because one of Scott Morrison's primary weaknesses as Prime Minister was the perception of dishonesty. And... Malcolm Turnbull's assertion to that fact carried so much weight because they had been colleagues. And, um, 
And in a way, I look, I look back at the sort of the, the origins of that, and it, and I reckon it comes back to the Batuta advocate. Because during the 2019 election, the editor there, I forgot his name, but I, I interviewed him for the book, and he was watching, um, he was watching as Scott Morrison went to the Horizon Church, his church in the Shire, and he allowed the cameras to come in. And this, this for many Australians was the first time we had seen inside a, um, an evangelical church, obviously it was the first time anyone alive in Australia had seen a, a Prime Minister or leave a major political party go and engage in this form of worship. So it was a pivotal moment in the definition of who Scott Morrison was. And this gentleman from the Batuta Advocate was watching it and, um, and in a way that they, those guys do, he just cut through. He said, yeah, he said, Scotty from marketing. You know, he'd run Tourism Australia, okay, and he said to me, he said, yeah, and he said, and I said, he said, I think Bill Shortland the same day had run a marathon or something, which is hyperbole, but, and he said, we thought at that point Morrison's probably got it. And so the Scotty for Marketing um, really sort of persisted on social media for about a year or so, and then it just started to seep into the consciousness of Australia. You know, it just became part of the background perception of who Morrison was. And then Morrison, and then Turnbull just with the Macron interaction, which I talk a lot about in the book too, um, there was a perception in the government that, sorry, I'll, I'll take a step back. When Australia, when Morrison cancelled the submarine contract with France, there was a perception in the government that Malcolm Turnbull rang up or texted Emmanuel Macron and started feeding him lines to use against Morrison. That is what the government believes because Macron's language was very similar to Turnbull's language and it was so effective and it played so effectively in the domestic political environment. And it's very hard for a foreign political leader, particularly on the other side of the world, to come up with the precise line that's going to cut through, but he did. And so, to your point, I think it was very, very significant. Did anything surprise you about Malcolm Turnbull and your interaction with him? Yes, it did. Look, I was at the um, at the very start of the year. I was um, I, I I sent Malcolm one of the edgy chapters for purposes of fact checking, and I reckon within an hour of receiving it, he he rang me. I was in a bicycle shop at the time, trying to pick up my bike, and um, Malcolm said to me, "I'm not going to talk to you, Aaron." And then I couldn't get him off the phone. And the, and the blokes in the bike shop are like, who is this bloke standing around here for 40 minutes on his phone? So, um, and look, people, people have said to me, um, you know, was it hard writing the book without Malcolm or do you wish you'd had Malcolm's participation? But no, the answer is no, because Malcolm said to me in our, com in our few conversations, he was saying the same thing that he was saying in public, and I've spoken to senior people in the Liberal Party and they approached him. And they basically said, can you please shut up? And... Malcolm said, I'm doing this for the country. This is for, I've got an obligation for the benefit of the country to come out here and advocate about policy that I believe in. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that. You know, It's up to you to decide whether you believe him. Uh, but certainly, there's a lot of voters out there who are pretty happy that Malcolm was doing this. Okay? So it cuts both ways.
Morrison didn't go to an inquiry about Porter. I mean, he could have solved it by that, just immediately, legally. Well, that, that's what Catherine Thornton, who was his accuser's friends, sought, was a administrative-type inquiry into Porter. Porter had a lot of support in the right wing of the Liberal Party. There's a lot of powerful people backing Porter, and uh, they would have been very upset if Morrison had essentially given in to Porter's accusers. Well, that, look, that's a really good, really good point. I, I'm, I don't know if it was the way, way out or not, because you need to know what the outcome would have been. We can't determine it. Well, then they would say, why have it in the first place? Anyway, well, look, in the end, um, Porter sort of solved the problem for Morrison himself by suing the ABC, which I write in the book as um, his most stupid mistake he made. I, I was just wondering if you've um, sent a copy of your book to um, Peter Dutton and <laughs> is he shaking in his boots? I'm sorry, I don't understand why he'd be shaking in his boots. Um, I don't think that Malcolm would see him as a good friend. No, and um, that is... When, when, when the Labor Party won the election, I thought, oh, well... This is, I wonder if Malcolm's done. So he's sort of got to rest on his laurels. And then, no, he hasn't. He's out, he was out there a week later um, attacking Dutton, going after Dutton. So he made it very clear that, um, you know, his animus towards Dutton is um, he's never hidden. And he's made it very clear that he's not going to um, uh, bury the hatchet with him. Is, is Turnbull seeking redemption, given that he left office... Uh, well, he arrived in office with a great sort of swell of optimism, given who he deposed, but he left office in a cloud of disappointment and failure, and I suspect he wears that failure very, uh, very keenly. And so now does he seek redemption with the, not only with the Australian public, but with himself? Well, that's a very profound question, and I don't have the answer to that because... Malcolm hasn't shared that with me, and I don't even think he shared it with his closest friends. And so I wonder one day if Malcolm will, will choose to reflect back on his behaviour and see what was driving him, um, other than what he would see as in the public good. I do think that... Um, that the pain of rejection run very, ran, runs very deep for Malcolm, as it does for Kevin Rudd. And you can see in that um, the weird Rudd-Turnbull alliance. And those two guys were, very, I think, are very similar, um, with one major difference, which is Rudd never publicly turned on his own side. So he still kept kept the faith in a way. I think there's some questions up the back. There's, what's the gentleman here? Oh, here we go. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, from, the, from the early days when Turnbull uh, was in the spy catcher affair in Britain to his later days in, in the Australian Republican movement, it was clear he was an intellectual, probably the most intellectual of all the politicians we've seen. Um, and yet folklore says that he was flirting with joining the Labor Party uh, rather than the Liberal Party uh, in those 
yeah, years. Is, is that folklore true? Do you know about that? Look, that, that is folklore, and that, is, that gets thrown up quite frequently, you know, as an argument as to why he's not a real Liberal. Look, I don't know, and I don't really think it matters. I, I think, I think um, many, more, many more politicians than we realise could have gone either way when they were young, and I don't see that of particular significance because people's political views and philosophies change over time and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, what is the bigger issue is that um, um, how does the Liberal Party now resolve this seemingly irrevocable split between its two wings? And you have Morrison representing... Well, let's say you have Dutton representing... Dutton Abbott representing the very conservative elements of the party and you have Turnbull and, say, Matt Keane on the centre. And, um, and what's happened has shown how destructive it is when those two competing worldviews can't be contained within the one party. I think that... And that, for me, is the heart of what, of what the problem the dilemma facing Dutton. Essentially, in simple terms, how does he unite the party? Okay? And is he the one to unite the party? Because how else does he win back North Sydney, Warringah, Wentworth, McKellar, Kuyong, Goldstein? I... Anyway, that's, sorry, that's my perspective. Conservatives have a different view. Was there a lady just here? Thank you. I've enjoyed it immensely. Did you get an opportunity to reflect on the influence of the wives? I mean, Lucy, compared to Jenny. I did. I did. <laughs> the, the wives. The wives issue was a really fascinating one because um, definitely some friends of the Turnbulls felt that it was Lucy Turnbull who was always Malcolm's most important political advisor was 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 fostering his anger. Um, and definitely there are some friends who feel that Lucy was as angry, if not more angry, than Turnbull about what happened to him in 2018. Um, it's impossible to know for certain, and they would never admit this publicly, um, but I think Lucy is so important in his life um, that um, perhaps she might have been the only person who could have who had the capacity to stop him doing what he did. And clearly she didn't. Um, and look, by all accounts, Jenny Morrison is a, is a lovely person and, um, and a very warm mother. Um, she clearly did not have the political sort of passion or, or, or engagement, um, say, as a Lucy Turnbull did, who was, who was mayor. And in a way... Um, her role in a, as, I guess, what you would call as a more traditional type partner um, contributed to the perception of Morrison as, a, um, as, not a, as not a progressive figure. And so in that sense, I think that was probably... That was, in that sense, Jenny was very important in terms of how she helped framed Morrison. Um, <clears throat> 
Morrison always painted great respect in public, but as you know, we laughed when I recounted the, the rape comment about Brittany Higgins, um, I think Morrison overdid it. You know, Morrison, Morrison laid it on a bit too thick in the end. Um, um, and I remember when, um, when um, Mike Baird, who was the Premier of um, New South Wales, who used to... He used to he used to say, you know, I've forgotten his wife's name, but he used to say, you know, I married out of my league. And look, it's a lovely thing to say, but after a while, um, people start to say, okay, mate, <laughs> you know, let's um, let's all be adults here, right? We're equals here, and so um, maybe drop the shtick. Who has the bigger ego, Kevin Rudd or Malcolm Turnbull? Look, some things cannot be measured. <laughs> um, I, note that, um, I note that Malcolm has now become a lobbyist for the hydropower industry. So he's essentially going around the world promoting dams. Um, and I think um, the Liberal Party would just prefer that he just retired and enjoyed his money and his kids. But... He, Alpha males don't retire easily. So, look, thanks a lot for coming, everyone. Happy to sign any books, but, you know, if you don't want to buy it, make sure you borrow it and read it too. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.